Um, so we're continuing our study through, uh, now we're in Second Samuel. Uh, we've been going through uh, basically the story of the Old Testament, but really um, as it pertains to God setting up his kingdom. Uh, we uh, have been in Matthew on Sunday for some time, obviously during this period of time, we've kind of taken a little bit of a break, but um, we've been in Matthew for about two years on the New Testament side where Matthew is dealing heavily with uh, Jesus establishing the kingdom of God and inviting people to come and dwell in it. And so uh, I thought it would be pertinent for us on Wednesday night to kind of go through, starting even as far back as the very beginning, um, looking at, um, uh, hang on, there's participants that are trying to join real quick. Uh, Boy, this is really crazy when you can't I'm sorry people um all right so but uh but as we set up the the uh the kingdom in Matthew as Jesus sets it up in Matthew I thought it was really important for us to go back through uh to the old testament and just investigate all of the things that God's laying out from the very beginning even as early as uh, with Adam um, establishing uh, a, a covenant with Adam and and, and um, laying out the expectations for how that covenant would be uh, would come to fruition that it would um, that it would uh, that he, he is to obey him and what does Adam do he fails to live up to the expectations of the covenant and it uh, brings on the rest of humanity, uh, a, a fallenness that we cannot get back to establishing that covenant or that the kingdom for ourselves. And so what we're seeing through the nation of Israel as it's promised to them from Abraham is that God's going to make of them a people and he's going to um, he's going to through them bring about the seed which will establish his kingdom on earth forever. And, uh, and so uh, he begins to establish a kingdom with the children of Israel. And we saw in 1 Samuel where uh, the, the Israelites demand a king, that he, he give to them a king. And this is prior to the moment when God is actually going to give them a leader that's going to lead them in David. He's already begun preparing that, uh, laying the groundwork for that with Ruth and Boaz. But uh, they ask for a king, and so he gives them Saul. And uh, um, Saul is the king, certainly, that they asked for, but he's not a king that's going to establish the kingdom of God. And so they, uh, so Saul leads them, and he leads them into iniquity. He never unites the, the kingdom. And what we saw last week is that uh, Saul's kingdom is really, is, is, torn apart is, um, is just in chunks. It's, it's really a a very tattered kingdom. It's not, uh, really even a kingdom to speak of. And so what David inherits when he comes onto the scene is not a kingdom that we would think of that has a palace and a throne and a, and a, and a, and a solid people and a, um, you know, a, 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 
good leadership and uh, a, a national unity and things like that. Uh, David doesn't have any of those things. In fact, the people are uh, separated, about as separate as they possibly can be. And uh, David is ruling from the city of Hebron, which is in the, sa- in the southernmost part of Judah. And as soon as he takes the throne, uh, a the... the uh, a competitive general, a general who was general under Saul's regime, appoints Saul's heir as king of the northern tribes. And so Ishbosheth is that son, and he takes over the northern tribes and becomes essentially um, a, sort of a puppet king uh, with Abner as it, at his right hand. And this and Ishbosheth reigns on the throne in the northern in the northern kingdom, which is essentially every tribe but Judah. So when we say uh, when the kingdoms are divided, and we use the term Israel, what we mean by that is um, is the northern all the northern tribes except for Judah, pretty much. Um, the southern kingdom being being Judah, and so they're they're you're kind of two different groups of people. And even the Northern kingdom isn't that united. But when David comes onto the throne, he reigns in Hebron for some number of years, while Ishbosheth is a sort of a puppet king in the North with Abner, Saul's former general, uh, at his right hand. And Abner is kind of instigating all of this. Now, when we get to our, as we get to our text to this, uh, this, this evening, you, you kind of need to understand that when you read the biblical text, there's always multiple things going on at one time. There's the the text as it as it reads, and it and it's relatively. I think the the, the Bible is relatively easy to understand uh, on on its surface. And then there's a lot of things lying underneath it. Um, there's a lot of political alliances, particularly in the kingdoms that we're going to see tonight, where. A lot of what David is doing and a lot of what uh, uh, Abner is doing and what's being said back and forth, there's there's probably a lot of underlying things that we also need to understand as we go into it. Um, And so with that in mind, you can open your Bibles if you have them uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 2. And right now, so here's the situation. I can't see my cursor when I share my screen to... Uh, and I had, I have somebody in the waiting room, but I, I can't get to him. So sorry. Um, uh, so, uh, you can open your Bibles if you have them to second Samuel, uh, chapter three is where we're going to mostly be tonight. Um, but there's, there's some things to consider in chapter two as well. Um, when we less, le- uh, last left off, Abner has, uh, has attempted to, let me see if I can get Sean mobs in real quick. Just bear with me for just a second. There we go. All right. When, when we last left off, Abner has um, uh, basically tried to start an altercation with, uh, with David and his men. And in the end, um, has, uh, has tried to call some sort of a, a little bit of a peace treaty. And what it looked like, at least at the very outset of this whole thing, is that Abner was going to make peace with David. Because he says, you know, in 226, 
Abner is talking to Joab, who is the commander of David's army. And he says to Joab, uh, shall the sword, and this is the first verse in your verse packet, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? So it sounds like Abner has the best of intentions and that Abner, what he really wants is for no more fighting to, to occur. Um, but that really couldn't be much further from the truth. Uh, there's not a peace treaty that's on the horizon, at least uh, from that moment, from chapter 2, verse 26. What we find out in, uh, in, in latter verses is that, that, that David and Abner are going to engage in a seven-year period of conflict um, in which David is going to reign in Hebron. And, but during this time, what's interesting is that the Lord's faithfulness continues to show in that David continued to grow stronger uh, and his dynasty continued to grow stronger while Abner's grew weaker and weaker. Um, and so uh, Abner and Ishbosheth, they're kind of I guess joint kingdom kind of grows weaker and weaker while David's continues to grow stronger. He continues to, um, to uh, uh, gather more people and, and things like that under his command. But the, the vast majority of where his ruling and where the growth of his kingdom lies or where we see it most is in the fact that he, he grows in the number of wives and children that he has. Now, <clears throat> This is really weird, I think, for all of us. Um, we are probably not used to, at least for sure, talking about this, but, but, but seeing it, um, at least in our society, um, polygamy is a normal thing in the Old Testament, for especially for kings. It's not a normal thing for people that are outside of the aristocracy. Just understand that uh, on the surface that it's, it's really not a normal thing for most people. It is a quite normal thing for many of the kings, um, especially the Near Eastern kings. Now, we dealt with this a while back, and I don't remember, I don't remember which week it was, but it was several weeks ago. We, uh, well, I guess several months ago now, we were talking about um, the, the relationship between polygamy and the Old Testament. How do we think about that? What is... What's going on there? Why are they Why are they polygamous? One thing that, and I, and I won't rehash all those arguments, but one thing that I will say off, on the off the bat is that it's um, we we know very clearly in Genesis two, God gave a man and a woman to each other to be with each other for a lifetime, and that was the intention of marriage. As it was created pre fall, that was clearly the intention of marriage. Um, one of the effects of the fall that we see in Genesis chapter three, we actually see it in Genesis chapter four, but Genesis chapter three is the, the fall of man where Adam and Eve take the bite and they're removed from the garden, lest they take from the tree of life and remain in that state. So God removes them from the garden as, as a punishment and a judgment, but also an act of mercy. And one of the first things that happens in chapter four is not only murder, but polygamy. And so we see that in chapter four already coming right out of the, right out of the gate. So it's clear that it's not a good thing. And the Old Testament law even warns the kings, you are not to involve yourselves 
in many wives and, uh, and gather in these entangling alliances, so to speak, because they're going to drag your heart away. And what we see is that part of the downfall of pretty much all of the good kings that would ordinarily be righteous, particularly I'm thinking about David and Solomon, is uh, both of them get uh, dragged away by women and by women that are not their first wife. And, uh, and so, you know, it's very clear that in the Old Testament, it doesn't pay off. It never does it pay off. In fact, you see it several times in um, Elkanah with uh, Hannah and Peninnah. They're, they're at war with one another. It almost always results in the, the wives having conflict with each other as it normally would because it's a sinful thing. But it's it being sinful and it being not God's intention is different than him just outlawing it outright, um, specifically in the law, like we get to in the New Testament. What we would see in the New Testament would be an example of progressive revelation where we come to understand what God's intention for marriage is, is one man and one woman for a lifetime. However, that being said, from this moment on, you're going to see lots of marriages from lots of kings to lots of women having lots of children. So just kind of know that that's going to be a pretty normal thing, at least for now. The way we should look at that, though, is that's not God's intention for marriage. We see what God's intention for marriage is both before the fall and after Christ institutes um, kind of new kingdom worship uh, on afterwards. So does that make sense? And if you have any questions, just feel free to um, open your microphone and ask me, but um, I'll, I'll go on if not. Um, so <clears throat> David's growing stronger, gaining more wives and more children. But one of the things that's particularly of note with the wives that he gains is this, the, the one wife, Macha. Um, she is, uh, you, you'll see here in, um, uh, in, uh, second Samuel three, two to five, it says, and the sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon. I got a lot of names, so bear with me here. Uh, his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Sheftah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithrim of, of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Um, if you see, hear me pause, it's just because I'm letting people in to the room here. Um, so of particular interest is Makkah. And the reason is because in the text, she is identified as the daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher. And that's particularly important. Why? Because that means that some of the marriages that David is getting involved in have political overtones connected to them. Um, the, what, what's really common, and, and I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I think it's even still common a little bit today, or at least it has been in pretty recent history, is um, kings giving their daughters to uh, alliances. And David collecting... Uh, uh, getting a wife from a, a, 
another king is an example of David's territory and his influence, his power, his persuasion growing over the land. And the reason that this particular king is pretty important, and you'll, you'll see why in just a second, but is because Gesher, the Gesher mentioned here is probably a kingdom that's just to the east of the Sea of Galilee. Um, now, if we look at that on a map, so that last blank there, it should be Sea of Galilee, if you've got it, because I'm going to flip slides and you're not going to have it anymore. So Sea of Galilee is the last blank there. Um, Gesher, if you can see that on a map, can everybody see all the way to the top at Gesher? Just David Maxwell, I can see you. So if you get a thumbs up, okay, good deal. Got it. Richard's giving me a thumbs up. Um, so uh, if you can see, ignore the orange line. It's meaningless at this moment, but it was a good map that I could find. So Gesher is up at the far north here, um, just to the east of the Sea of Galilee. That is, uh, I, uh, that's in the half tribe of Manasseh's territory, I believe. And um, so you, you basically have a king who is king over an area where Israelites dwell. Now, that's particularly important because if you see all the way down at the bottom of the map is Jerusalem. Below that is Hebron. It's not even included on the map. It's too far south. So David is way down south of Jerusalem. The king that he has, uh, 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 that is... Uh, his father-in-law, essentially, I guess if you want to think of it that way, is up north. So basically the territory that's left for, say, Abner and um, Ishbosheth and and the northern king uh, tribes of Israel is shrinking. And David's influence is growing across the region. And so this becomes evident. And part of that, that little list of daughters and wives that David is taking is important specifically because of that. We see David's influence is actually growing. But that's not the only influence that's growing. Uh, we also see that Abner is making a sizable dent into the kingdom of Saul. And this is one of those parts. This is where we start getting to some stuff in this, in this text that's uh, very difficult to discern if you're not paying attention. But Abner is making some political moves here, and, you, and it starts to become evident uh, in 2 Samuel 3, starting in verse 6. So if you look at your verse packet there in verse 6, here it is. It says, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, "Why have you gone in to my father's concubine?" Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, "Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because she feared him. Um, 
So, uh, because he feared him. So there's a few things that I want you to pay attention to in this passage. Um, It's possible that you can read this passage and see Abner as a pretty innocent party in all of this. That's possible. I realize that. Um, But I don't think you should read it that way. Uh, I don't think it's intended to be that way. I think Abner is a pretty squirrely dude. And I think we're supposed to see him as a, as a pretty squirrely dude. We saw that last week, even as he was trying to kind of start the skirmish, but he is Abner. It seems that at least the author is presenting him as, uh, as not only being squirrely, but politically very savvy. So one thing that you should know, note right off the, off the bat is what the author tips you off to in verse 6 is that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now, whether he actually tried to sleep with uh, um, Rizpah or not, Saul's former concubine, is sort of outside the the boundaries of anything that we could really answer. What is very clear is that he is seen by Ishbosheth as a threat to the kingdom. But Ishbosheth is for the most part a puppet of Abner. Abner's put him up to fight David, and now Abner it seems is kind of making uh, making inroads into gaining strength inside the kingdom. And it's at least feasible in Ishbosheth's mind that Abner could have tried to make a move on Saul's concubine. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because in the Near East, when a man took over the the harem of the deceased king, uh, now I realize that term harem is not something we're super comfortable with, but um, he had a lot of wives. And so the, the person that takes over the harem of the deceased king is widely accepted by everybody as the heir apparent or the king. And so we presume that Rizpah is Ishbosheth's, uh, now Ishbosheth's concubine, if you want to say it that way, and um, <clears throat> Abner trying to make a move and growing in power is uh, obviously a threat to the kingdom. And so Ishbosheth is kind of accusing him of of doing this, and it seems like Ishbosheth, who's a very weak man, it seems, is has approached Abner, and once Abner doubled down and said, "You know, I haven't done this," uh, then he didn't he didn't answer anything to him. He didn't say anything to him. Um, and there's that that phrase, "Am I a dog's head of Judah?" Which is obviously a, we don't really know exactly what that means or why he said that, but it's obviously an idiom in Hebrew and and. Who knows what the, the meaning of it is, but I guess the, the point that he's making is I, I'm not under the control of, of Judah to, to come in here and, you know, try to undermine the kingdom or anything like that. And so, but, it, but it, it, him going after the harem or being perceived to go after the harem is a pretty big threat. But at the end of it, Abner is resolved. Fine. I'm going to make uh, David king over everybody. But here's another thing to notice that in this passage, it's clear Abner knows that God has appointed David to be the king over all of Israel. And he's not only fighting against David, he's actually fighting against God as well. Abner is going to, Abner could, if you read this a certain way, this uh, chapter three and four, if you read it a certain way, Abner could come off smelling like roses, but he really shouldn't. 
he's kind of a scoundrel. And I think we're going to see little, a few more hints of that in just a minute. But, um, so Abner has, has at least been accused of, of making a pass at Saul's concubine. But, um, so after this accusation, Abner then, uh, makes a move and he tries to make, uh, he abandons the allegiance with Ishbosheth. And, but, but what you'll notice is that Abner is driven not by his theology, but by politics. And you'll, and this is going to be a very important thing with Abner. This is another reason why we think, why I think it's reasonable to conclude that Abner is a, is a scoundrel and, but a politically very savvy scoundrel is because he is, um, he, everything that he says is all about politics and really none of it is about theology. In fact, he has rejected David as king over Israel and fought against him precisely because of, of politics. He wanted power and control, and having lost Saul, his, his former king, he no longer has it. And so in order to get it back, he has to put a puppet king in just so that he can have some semblance of control. And so it was all about politics is the reason he's fighting against David. And now he decides to go uh, and promote David, not because of of his theology, but because of politics. And he's not seeking to expand David's kingship because he felt the authority of Yahweh's promise, but likely because he sought his own advantage. And you're going to see that play out in just a moment where he's really going after his own advantage here. Uh, And some of this, I think we're having to kind of look at sort of the subtext of the politics that are going on. But uh, I think it's it's certainly uh, not without warrant in the text. Um, So I want to pause real quick for any questions. If there are any, just open your mic. Um, And if, if not, then I'll just keep going. All right. Hey, oh, yeah, go I do, I do have one. So I could have to wait to the end, but so uh, one of the things that I get talking to guys, coworkers at work, uh, whether you try to bring up scripture, they're always going to try to bring up um, that this isn't true, or the Bible says this, and I don't see how this is this is can be true. Um, but one of the things uh, talking about marriage and marriage being between a man and a woman, and trying to establish that with them. One of the big things I get is I hear about um, the Old Testament and, yeah. um, you know, people, men having multiple wives. Right. Um, they always throw that out. Well, men had multiple wives and men did this and so-and-so did this. And I'm like, yes, yes. So how do you, how do you address those things um, without, I don't know, just how do you address those things when it comes to yeah. um, pertaining to marriage or because I remember you talked about marriage earlier with Adam and Eve and how God established that. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, especially with, with people that are antagonistic toward the Bible. Um, one of the things that I think is, is really important to establish is, well, okay, let's go back to the old Testament. Let's read the accounts that you're bringing up of people that had multiple wives. And I, I can almost guarantee you everyone that you're going to, that the Bible calls attention to, you had these, this wife and he had this wife and he had this wife. Um, but when you see how it plays out for them, uh, it's, it's never good. Uh, we're going to watch David's children and what happens there. And we're going to watch a lot of, of these kind of escapades sort of play out. And they're, they're just, they're not good. They never turn out good. That's one thing I, I always kind of bring up is like, you know, well, let's see how that, how it plays out for everybody. And it, it doesn't work out. Um, not least of which is Solomon, 
who the women, I mean, take him off into all kinds of different, um, you know, different things. And, um, so, uh, so that's one thing. The other is, uh, well, let's look at what Jesus establishes for actually following him, because I'm not trying to make someone just a believer in God. I haven't really, I haven't really accomplished my goal if I've only made them a believer in God and we haven't actually dealt with Jesus. And so I'm really trying to, trying to make disciples. I'm trying to make them a disciple of Christ. So let's, let's understand what Christ has established and how did monogamy come about? Well, monogamy came about by the Bible uh, and it was by Christ instituting, really instituting God's kingdom, his rule, his reign uh, on the earth through the advent of the Holy Spirit. So um, by God's grace, many of our cultures now have been bent back toward uh, monogamy, uh, mostly by virtue of, of Christian influence, by Christ's kingdom uh, having pervasiveness. And so um, I think what I, would, what I would seek to establish is, well, how are you going to follow Christ if you think polygamy is okay? Because, you know, if you want to follow David or you want to follow Saul or Solomon into, into wickedness and abandonment of, of, of Christ, then, you know, I guess that's to your own peril. But how are you going to follow Christ and still be a polygamist? You can't. And so, you know, I, I think helping to, to see that there is a transition that has happened and Christ has established God's kingdom and it is affecting the hearts of men and women uh, in, in the fact that the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside us and leads us into um, following his, his uh, rule and reign in a, in a better than David, Solomon, or anybody else ever could have before. So I think that's how I'd answer it. But obviously there's people that, that have questions about the Old Testament and the Bible, and then there's people that are antagonistic. And sometimes you have to know whether to answer a fool according to his folly or not answer a fool according to his folly. And it just, it just depends. So yeah, good question. Uh, okay. So, uh, so he, here's, here's Abner and he's, he's, uh, he's not really, um, he's not really doing anything according to, to the Lord's promise and the, and, and what the Lord has instituted. He's doing most everything for political advantage. And so what does he do then? Well, the first thing that he does when he says that he's going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go after David. I'm going to help establish David. What does he do? He, uh, he sends a, a delegation to David basically to offer a proposal for unification. And so he is, he is again, politically savvy. Uh, why is he doing this? Well, because the last thing that he tried to do for, uh, for David was really kill some of his men and it didn't turn out so well for him. So now he's got to, if he's going to promote David, he's got to let David know that he's, he's not on the offensive. And so he sends a delegation, um, in verse, in, uh, second Samuel three, 12 to 16, he says, and Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he, and, he, and he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you bring Michal, Saul's daughter, uh, all, uh, Saul, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, 
saying, give me McCall for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent her and took her away. I love this. <laughs> took her away from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to <laughs> Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go away. And he returned. <laughs> can't, help but, can't help but laugh with, with some of the ways things are said. And uh, so <clears throat> um, he sends a delegation to David and he says, here's a proposal. I'm going to give all of it. I've had a change of heart. I'm going to give all of Israel to you. I'm going to help you establish the kingdom because after all, didn't God do this? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, he's putting on airs, it sounds like. And so David said that's good, but David did the really politically shrewd thing and demanded a sign of Abner. Um, and the sign would be a sign of good faith that Abner would return Mikhail, his wife, his first wife, to him. Remember, she was taken from him by Saul before uh, Saul died and given to uh, um, to this man, Laish, uh, I guess is his name is the only time we see him in scripture, um, but uh, gave, gave him to him. And um, yeah, is that right? No, P- Paltiel um, gave him to Paltiel and basically took it, took her away from David. And David says, okay, I want my wife back. And obviously there's probably two, a twofold reason here. One is that uh, having his wife return is, pardon the expression, I don't think of it this way, but is a, a property deal. Like he, he actually, that's his, that, that belongs to him is, is the kind of the way I guess it would be thought of in sort of Old Testament kind of idea. And so that, that's one part is that uh, Saul took what was rightfully mine and I want it back. That's part of it. But the other part is that this is a, 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 a partnership of two royal families. And, and that was kind of the way it was understood. It seemed like on David's part when he first was given Saul's uh, daughter was that he's the heir apparent, even if Saul doesn't totally understand that, he's the heir apparent and he has the daughter of the king. So the daughter, the king is his father-in-law, which at least even further solidifies his right to the throne. And so to... Uh, get the, his wife back is sort of Ishbosheth saying again with the whole idea of the harem going back, um, go, going to, to the person that is that's over it is is kind of a sign that Ishbosheth is in on the deal because it doesn't seem like David knows everything that's going on right now and all Abner has told him is hey uh, I, I'm for you I want I want to make sure that you get the kingdom. And so he says, you're not going to see my face until you bring my wife back. And then he sends a notification to uh, Ishbosheth that he wants his wife back. And, and that's granted. And so it seems as though, it appears as though, um, all things are going pretty well with this delegation and with Abner's newfound uh, sensibilities. And so Abner is good on his word. Not only does um, does Mikhail go back to David, but he also starts working on the elders of Israel 
to get them on board with joining David. Not only does he persuade the Israelite elders, but he particularly persuades those from Benjamin. At least that's, he, he focuses a lot of his time on Benjamin. Um, and he, what his appeal to them is, uh, is to fall under, uh, in line under David um, and that we, that we should. And so he's good on his word. You can see in, in three seventeen through 21, um, he conferred with all, with the elders of Israel saying for some time past, you have been seeking David as King over you. Now then bring it about for the Lord has promised David saying by the hand of my servant, David. Okay, hold on real quick. So let's stop right there. He's making a pitch to the Israelite elders and particularly to those of, of the tribe of Benjamin. But, um, but look at what his argument is. He's arguing that David would be able to deliver Israel from their enemies. That's the, the central argument, his pitch, his sales pitch, if you will, to the elders. Hey, you've wanted David over you as king. So here's another thing that we find out. Surprise, surprise. The elders in Israel are kind of okay with David as king and don't really hate the idea of David being king over them. Um, But he says, uh, you know, look, um, he'll be able to deliver us from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all of our enemies. And so he spoke with the, spoke to Benjamin and then Abner went to tell David of Hebron. So Abner's now going down to see David and he, and he is, is good on his word. He has made the pitch. It sounds like the elders are in favor of it and uh, that they're, that they're ready to go and be with, uh, be with David uh, and have David as king over them. And um, let me answer this real quick. Answering the door here. Um, All right. Okay. Um, And so Abner goes down, wait, before I go to that one, Abner goes down to this meeting with David and he has good on his word. He has delivered the elders and um, to, to David and, and they're on board with following David as king. Um, and uh, so he goes down there and then Joab, who has been off on a, uh, on an expedition, good grief, Joab, who's been off on an, on an expedition uh, comes back with uh, his people just as Abner is leaving. And he sees Abner, and he knows that Abner has been there. And he tells David, wait, 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 wait. What, what are you doing? You can't have Joab uh, down here. This is, this is ridiculous. So um, look at 2 Samuel 3, 22 to 30. Uh, he says, just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told to Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. In other words, Abner came, and David didn't kill him. Okay, then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you, what, why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to all that you are doing. Okay, 
So Joab has, has come back from this expedition and it was told to him that Abner was there and David didn't kill him. And now he is uh, fit to be tied as it were. So he is, he is really mad and uh, basically approaches the king in the nicest way possible and says, how is it that, that you didn't kill him? He just came down here to spy on you. And so he doesn't get a satisfactory answer from David. And so what Joab does is he takes matters into his own hands. He intercepts Abner and he murders him. Now, it's presented, obviously, in the text as, um, uh, well, you kind of get the idea. He, he murders him because he killed his brother As- Asael. And that happened last week. You, you, you kind of know that going in, that he's, he's out to get revenge. But remember what we talked about last week, and this is really important, especially for, uh, for as it pertains to Joab, is that there is a provision in the Mosaic law that if somebody kills some, uh, some, someone of, of yours, a relative of yours, you have, uh, you have the ability to seek uh, what's called lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And so you're, you're able to sort of seek a revenge, as it were. Uh, blood is, is going to be the cost, as it were. And so, uh, but that is not the case with Joab. Remember, Abner killed Asel out of self-defense. He gave Asel the opportunity to turn away, and he doesn't. He continues to come after him. And so Abner does the only thing he really can do at that moment, and he kills Asael with the back end of his spear. And so Joab doesn't have legal authority to actually kill Abner. He basically just takes matters into his own hands and goes after Abner anyway and kills him. And now part of this is obviously because his brother was killed by Abner. But another part is probably um, that he saw the covenant that David made with Abner. And there's little doubt that Abner is making this covenant with David and has some political advantage on, of his own to gain. Um, the reason that I would suggest this is probably what's going on in the text, or at least under the text, is that um, Abner has done nothing in this passage or in the whole, since we've met him, that wasn't to his own political advantage. And so Abner in all likelihood in partnering with David in order to get the Northern tribes on board, he's probably securing a position of authority in some capacity, maybe as a military leader, perhaps he's even taken Joab's spot, who knows, but it's, it's probably likely Joab not only is seeking revenge of Abner, but also he sees the covenant that Abner is making with David. And it's probably a threat to his own position as a military leader. And so he takes matters into his own hands. Um, whether that's all the case there or not, I'm not sure, but I think it's reasonable to conclude that that's probably what's happening. Um, so now Abner's dead. Joab has killed him. And boy, now we have a really big mess on our hands. So David has this huge problem because the death. So Abner has gone down to see David and to, uh, establish some sort of treaty between the elders of the Northern tribes and David and all that's going to make it back to the Northern tribes is that Abner went down there to make peace and now he's dead. So 
you can understand where David is as a king uh, being put into an unbelievably awkward predicament and uh, where he's now got to, he now has the death of Abner. Plus, it also seems like David thought Abner was probably not that bad of a guy and, um, and maybe even liked him. And I, I'm not suggesting that David is sort of putting on airs with what he's about to do, but it does seem like David is, is, um, is at least uh, showing the mourning process and will mandate the mourning process in all of Israel in order to help the northern tribes understand that this was a total miscommunication and a lapse, and this was not, had nothing to do with him or his desire to actually sit on the throne in Israel. Um, so all the, of, cor- of course, all the elders would interpret it that, and then they, they would obviously plot to remove, uh, it was a plot of David to remove uh, the last obstacle to a seizure of power, and he was just going to take it by force. But that is not at all what David does. In fact, what we see here is that David, uh, as kind of the moniker has been placed on him for some time, he's a man after God's own heart. And we see that come to fruition anytime someone dies. Anytime someone dies, really what he would consider unjustly, which I think is part of the impetus behind David doing what he does, is that he sees Abner as dying unjustly. And, uh, and what David does is he, he really does what's right. And he, dem- he mandates across the country that the whole country be thrown into a period of public mourning so that, um, so that they can properly uh, lament um, Abner's death. And David's, <clears throat> David's lament is seen as so sincere with the nation of Israel as a whole that the elders are convinced that he meant nothing by it and that his kingdom meant nothing by it and that the two could coexist together. And without, so we've seen this before too with David. Not only is he a man of integrity and he, uh, he doesn't, uh, when, when, especially we, when people die unjustly, he, he doesn't take that lightly. He doesn't take the blood, the shed of blood lightly, uh, nor should he as the one who's being charged with instituting God's kingdom. But, uh, we see that he's a man after God's own heart, but we also see that he's politically savvy. Uh, he played the fool, played, uh, played a crazy person to get out of jail with the Philistines and it worked. He, uh, played more politically, politically savvy games with the same king uh, years later to basically let, so that the king would let him live on his property. So he lived among the Philistines, pretended as though he was going to fight with the Philistines. He's, he's not only a, a, a man of integrity, he's also a very politically savvy man. And he, he tends to blend the two uh, very well together. And so um, it's the lament that David undergoes and the public mourning that he institutes across, uh, across Israel is, is not just mourning. It's also, um, it's also a matter of, of politically savvy. And so uh, political savvy, and I I don't think those two are, um, work against each other, at least not when it comes to David for the most part. Um, so, uh, so anyway, David institutes this period of public mourning and lament. And you can see that in second Samuel three, 36 to 39, Um, he says this, it says, and all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. 
So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, "Do you not uh, do you not know that the that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, and uh, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness." So David doesn't really put Joab to death, but he does leave him to the Lord's will. Uh, whatever the Lord's going to do with him, the Lord's going to do. And he sort of leaves that up to, up to the Lord to decide. Um, so there's this, um, so the, there, there's um, the feeling spreads across Israel. David is their king. They love everything that he does. They're happy to, uh, to join in with him. And, and then there's, you know, typically when people they, they, that don't know David, they think he wants one thing and it, it turns out they, they have totally misread him. This also goes to show that David is a man after God's own heart in that he does not want the things that typically other men and other kings want. You would think a king comes to the throne that anybody who goes after the king's enemies and puts them to death would gain favor with the king. And so it seems like this is a recurring theme in David's kingship when people want to do this over and over. And so what do we have? We have a, 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 a you know, a couple of people that are, are seeing that this, this um, as this fragile agreement is hammered out uh, between David and Abner, lest it be aborted. Um, they, they want to make sure that they solidify this agreement. So what do they do? They try to take out the king's enemies. And so, one of the worst things that Ishbosheth could possibly do during this time is take a nap in the afternoon, it turns out. So he's laying down on his couch, taking an afternoon nap, and two assassins who want to make sure that this agreement comes to fruition sneak into his place and kill him in his sleep. And uh, thinking that, oh man, this is going to be great. This is going to win us some some points with the with the new boss, and uh, so we'll go in and kill him. And so while Ishbosheth takes an afternoon nap, uh, he goes in and he kills him. Um, they not only kill him, but they chop off his head, and they take his head all the way down to Hebron as a token, as a sign that uh, that that they've they've done this, that Ishbosheth is dead, and that David can actually uh, that the way has been cleared for David to sit on Saul's throne. And so uh, David does the only thing that he can do at this moment, and he has both of them executed, and he has their bodies hung uh, publicly in Hebron for everyone else to see as a warning. Uh, David is uh, ruthless with people that do ruthless things. And... um, and he doesn't take kindly to people touching the Lord's anointed. And can you imagine uh, even seeing Ishbosheth as part of the will of God? Can you imagine that? Seeing a political rival, someone who has, um, has basically usurped your right to the throne, the right that God has given to you, to see that person even in spite of his arrogance, ignorance, obstinacy, still seeing that person as 
they're part of the will of God. Um, I mean, that, that is a level of patience and, um, and, and humility that uh, is, is just a, a, an unbelievable thing to look at is watching David see this guy who is basically impeding his right to the throne as still there by God's appointment. And if you touch him and you kill him, well, you deserve to die. So um, David, I think, is, is, uh, is a really good candidate up to this point in the narrative for establishing the kingdom of God on earth. Now he has no impediment to the throne and he's going to take it. And the kingdom of Israel is going to be unified here in the fifth chapter coming up next week under, under David for the first time, really. And it's going to experience a golden age under him and Solomon. But, and so, so it, it looks like he's going to be the one to institute God's kingdom, but he's still going to mess up and it's still going to be, um, uh, impossible for him to do. We're going to see later on. But, um, as, as of this point in the story, things are really, really promising questions, comments, concerns. Another thing, uh, as far as the, uh, fascination of Abner, uh, Joab had also occurred in the city of refuge, so it was two times not a legal quote vengeance. Two times not a not a legal vengeance. Yeah, that's right. I'm gonna get out of this so I can see everybody. Yeah. Any other questions or? Sorry for the. Uh, technology deals in the meantime it's hard to figure out the program and all that and make sure we let people in at the right time so they don't so we don't get zoom bombed and all this kind of other junk that we got to watch out for so sorry about all of that but any other were there any other questions or comments or points that you wanted clarification on all right well um in that case, well, I'm not going to make you. I'm not going to make you ask questions. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll we'll go until next week. All right, same bat time, same bat channel next week. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We uh, I thank you so much for this time that we've been able to gather together and uh, just read from the Bible and talk about some of the things that are going on here um, and watch a record. Um, Holy Spirit-inspired, authoritative, inerrant, infallible record of how you have saved us. And uh, I pray that through this study in the Old Testament that we grow both in understanding and insight, knowledge, uh, even of things like just facts, of things that are going on, of history, but also knowledge of you, that our our minds would expand to understand more of who you are as you have revealed yourself to be. We understand it is negligence on our part if we neglect 
um, the way you have revealed yourself and understanding what you have revealed about yourself when you have told us plainly. Um, and to neglect that, we understand, is sinful. And so we pray for forgiveness there where we have neglected that. And we pray that not only would our minds expand to understand more of who you are, but our hearts would grow as well. That you would expand uh, our, our hearts to uh, obey your word and to understand that we have salvation in Christ and that um, we are, are, are now empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit to do good works that please you and to live in accordance to your will. And so I pray that by your spirit, we would be able to do that. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.